today's episode, author Brian Catlin. I'm Chris Alvarez, and welcome to Full Contact Nerd Interviews, where I interview writers and other creative people about their work. Put on your headphones, sit back, close your eyes, relax, and prepare for a pleasant journey into a universe of imagination. Thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Brian Catling, author of Hollow, published June 1st, 2020 by Vintage. Uh, thank you very much for speaking with me. Thank you. So first, you know, you, you, you're involved in a lot of the, uh, the arts, uh, performance, uh, sculpting, poetry. Um, I forget what else. Um, there's quite a bit there. Um, but, <laughs> but with all these ideas going around in your head, you know, as a creator, how did this particular idea sort of rise up and, and grab your attention in time? Of this story. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, it, it first came, it's always difficult beginnings of fragile things. Um, I was staying somewhere in Spain and before me there was a hollow. There was a, uh, I was on a cliff, staying on a cliff and there was a, a, a valley. Um, and it was big and it was a sort of, it was an area that could have absorbed a great number of people and things. And I just, the idea of that, that just started it. I'd also, I'd like to, in some way, look at Bar- Bosch and Bruegel and their, and their inventions, because it, it always amazed me that in all the uh, wonderful science fiction and fantasy things that have been made for the cinema, no one ever has gone near Bosch or Bruegel. Hmm. Okay. And it's, that's extraordinary because this is the beginning of certain kind of creatures, uh, inventions of certain sort of things that are, that, that, that are talk to men, unrelate to men, mm. and um, have, have some physical uh, resemblance. They came out of nowhere. They, you know, those painters invented those things. Mm. But no one ever made a film. No one ever sort of thought about that. I thought, you know what? Maybe it's because they've never had a story. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that was, that was at the back of my mind. It wasn't a seed, it was just at the back of my mind. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember what actually started it. There's generally, there's generally an image or a thing that kind of starts something. I know what it was, exactly what it was. Mm. Of course it was. Um, there was a belief, a genuine belief, that St. Christopher was a dog-headed man. Mm-hmm. One of a certain tribe of Sensaphili, who are creatures... Are sub men with the heads of dogs, mm-hmm. and there are paintings. There are medieval paintings. There's one in in Athens in the museum in Athens of Saint Peter in all his robes, all of his robes with the head of a dog, mm-hmm. and that seems so impossible, right? It's all Christian mythology that then you start to find out what it means, mm-hmm. and I think it started there. The two things kind of joined up. Mm-hmm. So it makes me. I don't know if this this thought will lead to any sort of comment from you, but it's interesting when you think about, you know, you have sort of the religious spiritual and then you have the magical and yeah. it, it, it's, you know, it's a weird blend of the two, which most people might think, Oh, you know, magic was, was put down by the Christian church. It was considered evil. And yet here you, here you have this, this imagery. It was only put down. Um, the Christian church has been very good at absorbing things. Hmm. It certainly absorbed all of them, all of the magical and historic background of the Judaics. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, um, 
of mythologies, mm-hmm. of religions. It, it's absorbed as much as it's destroyed. Mm-hmm. So the public, the public outcries against um, uh, demons and evil are generally theatrical mm-hmm. because they, they try to burn people. They make a big, a big song and dance or something. But the power of it, the power it contains within people's minds, and also, if you believe in these things, actually there, has been absorbed into the church. Mm-hmm. That's why lots of the ancient uh, churches in England and Europe were built on the sites of, pay, uh, of pagan uh, pagan temples, mm-hmm. not to destroy them, but to absorb what was already there. Mm-hmm. So then, tell me, uh, tell me about the, uh, the the conflict, the protagonist, the setting of this this book. It's uh, uh, it's it's an abbey that lives uh, somewhere. Sorry, just a second for us. There's somewhere the painters of medieval times, when they painted Christian images, they most often painted them in their backyards. Mm-hmm. So, so all the sacred places were suddenly painted with Dutch landscapes, yeah. or painted with wherever they were at the time. Mm-hmm. And I've loved those inconsistencies. So, so this is it. This is the central thing. Is a mountain called Das Kargel. Mm-hmm. that is actually probably the original Tower of Babel, but it's kind of fallen inwards, it's, it's, it, 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 it's overgrown, mm-hmm. and it's now covered in snow. And, and at the base of it are the medieval uh, villages that both Boigo and Brosh knew, uh, knew as, as, as their homes. Mm-hmm. And in the abbey there, there's they, the, the greatest secret of all, they're protecting and making this machine work, and it's a machine to keep the worst fear, the most destructive fear for humans to know is about death. It's about the confrontation of death. Okay. But they will do anything they can to avoid that. So there's a, there's a device which is a kind of a battle, an onward battle between the living and the dead mm-hmm. that continues over and over again. It's taken care of by a monastery of at the base of the mountain. And in that monastery is an oracle, mm-hmm. a little creature who lives in the wall that some way controls it. And it's just died mm-hmm. under mysterious circumstances. So they've got to send out for a new one. And you don't get them in supermarkets. It's <laughs> quite difficult to find. Mm-hmm. But there's certain people in the church who have found one. Mm-hmm. And to bring it bring it back to this place, to plug it in, to make sure everything is goes back to equilibrium, They've hired a bunch of mercenaries. It's a kind of wild bunch mm. of like intolerable men mm. because they need their strength and they need their viciousness. But most of all, they need their sin and they need their confessions mm. because that's what the oracle eats. Mm. Okay. That's what sustains it. So on the journey down, each one of these men has to confess into a box. Mm. In the box are some broken human bones. They tell their stories into the bones. The bones are taken out, and then the marrow of the bone is taken out and fed to the oracle. Ah, okay. It's disgusting. <laughs> but, but, but it sustains it. Mm-hmm. And it gets it down. So that's the thing. It's trying to get down to this. That's its task. Whatever's happening below is happening below. And there's several other stories inside that that are occurring at the same time. So I noticed in the... On the Amazon page, it, it lists it as being a Asian myth and legend. Is is there any connection? Is it, to, 
Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask if that makes... Uh, no, no, that's... Um, <laughs> I never saw <thought> that. <laughs> no, so, it's not. No, uh, and it's nothing... There's not even any trowels in there. There's some little bits of it, but no, no, no. It's it's a it's mid-European mm-hmm. and then amplified. Mm-hmm. Um, amplified into something else. So... Did you do? Did you have to do much research for this book, or is it more, more from your imagination? It's mostly from imagination. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are certain research things which are, you know are always. I like to get it right. Mm-hmm. I mean, the book after this, uh, for example, is um, I've got a character moving through med- medieval, medieval England, mm-hmm. and so I can invent all those things and know what they are. But how did they travel? How did they travel for 300 miles on foot by a horseback? They haven't got any money. You know, where did they stay? Well, those kind of things, those nuts and bolts are more difficult to find out than anything else, anything else you can invent. But I've got to get it right inside. It's my obsession to get it right, you know, to make it sound a believable thing. Mm-hmm. Um, looking at uh, just seeing your previous works, um, yeah, there's a very poetic quality i mean you're i think you're a poet as you know as well yeah, I was just... a poet, um, um a long time before i started writing um imaginative prose mm-hmm. so i'm curious about the um sort of the influence of poetry or poetic feeling and and uh expression in in this book and, and maybe your previous ones it's not something that kind of i have a choice about it's not like a kind of um, like a series of spices I take them and, and, and put in the food. I just write that way. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I write that way that it's so obscure. Mm-hmm. I know what I'm saying, but the poetic, so Tim, Tim, my editor, it's, he, he kept saying the same thing. He said, be kind to your audience. <laughs> in other words, tell them what you're thinking. Because mm-hmm. I've gone off on some poetic description that actually doesn't make any sense to anybody. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so it has to be untangled, diluted sometimes, and made clear. Mm-hmm. So it's not something that's added. I just think like that. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, I don't speak like that. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and I don't have anything like the vocabulary in my spoken day-to-day world mm-hmm. that I have when I, I write. Mm-hmm. And I don't understand it. I'm speaking with Brian Catling, author of Hollow. You can find more information about his work at bcatling.com. If you like this episode so far, please like it and consider subscribing. All of my links can be heard at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. So would, um, do you have, do you include a song or, or are, are there poems within the the text or the story itself not as such no no the whole thing is the way it's written and i think the way it's seen mm-hmm. is that way and sometimes i i, I will invert i will invert i, I will invert a, a description mm-hmm. i won't do it purposely i'm not an academic a writer at all mm-hmm. i don't have a kind of plan and then kind of go through it i start to type and out it comes, mm-hmm. and then I go back and tidy it up and change things. But it's, but 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 the impulse is attached to the language. The language is attached to the impulse. Mm-hmm. Do, do you have an ending in mind when you start, or do you just? 
if I'm lucky, <laughs> uh, um, uh, but often not. I mean, it's and it, it can change. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, it's, it's possible to start with only the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, um, but what I, I don't have a skeletal plan. I don't. It's not mapped out mm-hmm. at all. How about a a theme or an atmosphere? Do you, do you come yeah. to the page with that, or is it? I I know I'd like. I don't know how to do it. I mean, I literally. I, mean, I never did a degree. I never did any advanced education in writing at all. When mm-hmm. I was at school, I was a, a dyslexic. Hmm. I was in the woodwork class. Okay. So so you no. Know, so I've never had that kind of formal background. Mm-hmm. Um, I find the atmosphere, I think, because I want to be it. I want to be in it. Mm-hmm. When I'm writing these things, I'm there. Ah, okay. Okay. And it's, I'm really there. And it's like the same with the characters. It's like a, when I'm writing these people, I am them. I kind of take them on. Mm-hmm. It never goes beyond the laptop. <laughs> it's, I don't yeah. go out in the street and become that, you know, but it's thank God. I mean, it's, it's, it's completely <clears throat> contained. It's completely organic mm-hmm. so so when you visualize you know in your mind when you visualize a wor- a, a world or a setting you know yeah. considering that you know your the art you've done do yeah. you do you sort of see yourself as writing as though you're describing what you're seeing yes. like you know yes exactly uh, i mean I, 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 I see it mm-hmm. and, 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 so, and sometimes there are certain feelings i want into it I know I want them, but I don't know how they come about. Mm-hmm. It's not a mechanism. I don't have a series of mechanisms. I know I can rely on this one to do that. Mm-hmm. It either works or it doesn't, and I have to go back and do it again until it does. And so where would be the line, you know, because you could describe a scene, you know, to the minutest detail, but yeah. uh, I, I think what, what I looked at it, you know, when I looked at your work, you don't go that deeply into it. I'm just no. curious what the sort of what the line is for you or the, you know, the limit. I, I um, I'm very interested in the people in it, mm-hmm. but I, I hardly ever describe them uh, in great detail physically. Mm-hmm. I want to leave a kind of space on that for, for the reader. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm much more likely to go onto a piece of mach- describe a piece of machinery in much too much detail. Yeah. Okay. Or something like that, you know, and um, and also things things are not always sentient. So so the life of things and the meaning of things between people and objects and machines and landscape changes. Mm-hmm. What are some of the th- considering all the things that you're involved with? Um, what is there anything primarily that inspires you? Any any activity? Any books? Um, music? Um, there, there, there's lots. Um, I can't read fiction when I'm writing it, hmm. and as I'm writing it all the time now, I haven't read a lot of contemporary fiction, which kind of makes me kind of ignorant in in certain areas. I would rather not be. Hmm. Okay. Um, I listen to music when I paint. I can't have words near me when I write, and okay. I can't have music near me when I write. But but when I paint it, it all comes in. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I make performances, there are certain things, there are certain personas and certain things I take on that are not me. Mm-hmm. That I kind of think, well, that would be, 
I wonder what that would be if that was used fictionally. Mm -hmm. They could take that thing on, you know, and that's that's a real gift. Mm -hmm. I mean, I love that because I've always never, I've never always wanted one life. I've always wanted mm -hmm. loads at the same time. Mm -hmm. And this gives it to me. Yeah. Do, do you ever paint any of the scenes you write? No. <laughs> huh. I kind of paint around them, but every time I try that, you know, I'm not Mervyn Peak. I mean, it's every time I try to kind of illustrate it, it goes wrong. Huh. Okay. Lots of people have asked me to, but I can't, can't quite do it. I can do something to the side, mm -hmm. you know, but I can't actually, I'm still trying. So f when you do write, what sort of, uh, what do you need around you? You know, what, what do you feel is the, what motivates you best? What sort of setting, you know? I write at dawn. Mm -hmm. I begin at dawn. Um, not to the night, so my wife sitting next to me in bed, but it's, um, so I start when other people are asleep in the house. Mm -hmm. And I do two hours maybe then. Mm -hmm. And then go, the day goes through, and then, then a bit later on, a little bit here, a little bit there. Mm -hmm. I, I work that way because I spend a lot of my time as a teacher working in, in a university. Okay. Most of, my, most of my life I've had a nine-to-five-day job, even if it's only been six months of a year. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I go go out to work, and then I come back, and then that space, I, I, I make my work. Mm-hmm. So I've done that for so long, it's kind of it's still there. Even though I'm in retirement now, I've got endless space. Mm -hmm. I still work a bit like that. Okay. So for this book, uh, what would you say is sort of the aesthetic, and also if you could include, if you had a soundtrack for the book, yeah. what what kind of feeling would it have? Mm, that's, that's difficult. Huh. Um, I think it would be a mixture of raucous, um, hurdy gurdy music because that's what happens. Hmm. Carnival is happening at, uh, at the base of the book. There's a lot of knockabout humor and kind of terrible people getting drunk in it at, at the base of the mountain. And then these grim people coming around down. So I guess their stories are very dark, they're very sonorous, they're very moody. But the rest of the base of the mountain is foolishness. Mm -hmm. And then there's the church. Then there's the, you know, the. The church continuing trying 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 to present itself, and it's written at the time of um, the Spanish Inquisition when the Spanish Inquisition Spanish forces moved into the Lowlands mm. and the Netherlands for quite a long time. Mm. When I I'm not going too far, I first went to Den Bosch, at Sonnenbosch, where where Bosch lived, the painter Bosch. It's a little town in in uh, Holland, mm. and it's it, most of it was flattened in the war, but it's still got little bits. Mm -hmm. And I, I was talking to people and I said, have you got any original paintings? And said, no, no, all gone. The Spanish took them. Hmm. The Spanish stole our paintings and gave us the plague. <laughs> and that's yeah. what they say. That's that's that. That's what happens to the, to the Prado. Mm -hmm. It's full of Bosch paintings because they're all stolen. Hmm. Sorry, that didn't answer your question, did it? It was interesting, though. Uh, <laughs> I do ramble. And if, if I can be cheeky, I'll say I certainly didn't expect the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> <laughs> they're in it. They're, yeah. they're back of it. They 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 had a lot to say. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, um, so it's interesting. So, thinking about so you just described where you combine, you know, this carnival atmosphere, people having, you know, fun, the dark, you know, the dark, the church, you know, are you are are you making any sort of commentary on the interplay between? 
you know, carefree life versus the very somber not, life? It, not in any kind of moral way. I mm-hmm. mean, it's just that that's what it's always been and it always will be. I mean, this is at the point, it, in that time, it was very divided. So Carnival was this side and Lent was this side. Mm-hmm. And they met. And there was one day when, when they changed over. And that's the day that this thing arrives. Mm-hmm. So okay. it's a it's, it's a it's a mindset change with the normal people as these things walk into it. Mm-hmm. But it's an agreed one. It's it, it's a ritual. Have have you explored religion a lot in your other works, writing or otherwise, or art? Um, not not religion as such. I'm interested in so many. Um, I'm interested in the ritual of it. I'm interested in mm. its its architecture. I'm mm. interested in the terrible parts of its power. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in the good it can do and the bad it can do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's always for me been something to watch rather than to believe in. Mm-hmm. Even though I, you know, I was I went to church and, and when I was young, you know, and did all those things, but I never. It was never a belief. It was, it was something else. It was like a theatre that was so extraordinary to the rest of my normal. I grew up in very poor circumstances, hmm. but there was this thing at the end of the road, this vast building with these wonderful things occurring in it. They had nothing to do with my life. Hmm. Yeah. I found that extremely interesting, and still do. Hmm. So uh, let me ask about um, the characters that you've written in your various works. Um, Who's been your favorite character to write, either in this book or, or others? Well, I think probably two of them have been real people. Ah, okay. Because they, they in the Vore and the Vore trilogy, some real people found their way in. Mm-hmm. And people, one of the questions people would say was, how can you do this? How can you drag real histories in, into this fantasy, this fiction? Hmm. And so one is Edward Mybridge, the photographer. Mm-hmm. who worked in America making these um, uh, photographs of motion. Okay. His life is so extraordinary. So I said to him, hang on a second, I'll tell you something. So I, I'll tell him four things about his life. Mm-hmm. And he said, that's terrible what you've done. I said, no, that's real. That's the real bit. Mm-hmm. When you get someone who has a life like that, and you think, well, you know, I can... But it's not like it's me doing it. Mm-hmm. It's I'm, I'm watching them, and suddenly they go, oh... You're showing me something. Mm-hmm. So I track them. Huh, okay. And I track them into fiction. But it's, but I don't, see, fiction is a, I also believe fiction is a, is a great mechanism to understand history. Mm-hmm. When you've got a little piece of history and you've got all the facts from it, it's all been bled, it's all been, everyone's read it, taken apart, taken apart. You can't get back any further. Mm-hmm. But fiction can become an actual tool to step back into that place. Mm-hmm. I'm just as valid mm-hmm. as something written on a piece of parchment mm-hmm. at that time, mm-hmm. if it's complete, and if you really believe it to be so. Mm. And um, similar question, what what has been the hardest character for you to write for whatever reason? The most Normal difficult? ones. Oh, normal ones? Normal ones. I'm not very good with normal ones. Mm-hmm. I have to, um, if it has to be a kind of, um, well, I don't really do it. That, 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 I don't really write normal people, but yeah. it's, uh, that's the reason why, because I can't. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> I don't believe in them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
someone said in the war thing, one of the things about it was very kind of amoral because there's no good people, there's no bad people. They're all doing bad things one day and then good things the next. I think, <laughs> I'll go with that. You know, that's the way I see it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think then it sounds like people believe that normal, normal people are the fiction. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know? <laughs> Um, and the sort of things I can't read. Yeah. So, um, how about characters that are, you know, the opposite of you in some way, like whatever yeah. way they might be? How, how do you step into the shoes of a someone you're not familiar with? <laughs> yeah, I've just, yeah, I've just done that with another book. Yeah. Um, um, by their humanity, by the fact that any which way they are. In the end, you'll find some of the same motivating factors and the same. I don't think we're that extraordinarily different from each other. Mm -hmm. Humans make extraordinary circumstances to be different. Mm -hmm. and I think in the end, they come down as being very much the same. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think that's, yeah. They, mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is, it's interesting, that's a concept which, in a sense, religion kind of says, you know, everyone is the same, you know, dust to dust, and, you yeah, know. Some religions, yeah. Yeah, some religions, <laughs> yes. Um, you know, and then it's also sort of a, yeah, it's just interesting. Um, you know, some people would say, oh, no, I'm I'm nothing like, you know, that serial killer, you know, down the road. You know. I wish I could, but I can't. Yeah, the circumstances are, you, you never know what's going on. And people invent circumstances, and, you know, they, people get terrorized and brutalized in circumstances. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And sometimes they, sometimes they just enjoy being there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, 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 the more you read on that, the more confusing it becomes. Yeah. And it's a very, people are very perverse creatures. Not many other animals are that perverse. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> um, so, how has your approach to writing changed over time? H how long have you been writing prose? Okay, I'm 61 years old. Mm -hmm. um, I've been writing little bits of prose. I've been writing poetry for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I did a little, few little bits of prose, but I never... I could never get there. I had, I had the opening sequence of the vor in my head where this man makes a bow from his dead wife or the body of his dead wife. Mm. And I tried to write it for like four or five years and never got past page three. Mm. And and then it happened. It happened for two reasons. Um, I mean, when people ask me seriously, they often say, what is the cathartic made happen? And I say, it's a laptop. Mm-hmm. This thing was invented that allowed it to come out. Hmm. Okay. So it was a thing exterior to me that allowed it to come out. The other thing was not it was not a great thing. So someone gave me a book to read by a rather famous author. I was going to Australia um, to do a residency. I was on a long plane ride. Mm -hmm. And I started to read this thing. I read about a third of it. I thought, this is terrible. It's bloody awful. Mm -hmm. I could do better than this. And then sometime he said, prove it. <laughs> Oh, it's just pub talk. Mm -hmm. Just sit in the bar saying it. Do it. Yeah. So those two things, the laptop and that, that's what spurred it. Mm -hmm. And it opened the floodgate and it's never stopped. Oh, wow. 
Okay. And I can't explain it. I cannot explain it at all. I guess all those all those years I wasn't writing, but imagining were kind of there was a great dam of stuff behind me. Mm-hmm. So do you do you have to do much editing once you finish your first draft? Is there much editing? I go back and look at it, and I give it um, to my partners and my friends and my children to turn into English because being a dyslexic, you know, I'm not. It's not. It's it looks like something, you know, that you'd find in Gilgamesh or something. But it's like it needs a little bit of resorting. Okay. okay. <laughs> and then they give it back to me, and I've, I put it this way. And then I've been blessed with wonderful editors. Okay. Okay. Do you write? So apart from what you just described, do you do you write more than you need to? Like, is there a lot that's cut out? You know, reducing. No. 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 Uh, the things that have been cut out have generally been. Um, not they've been exaggerations or they've they've taken a story off in another line Hmm. or they've been there because I've had a sentimental reason to put it in. Mm -hmm. Um, And Tim McConnell's got an eye for this. I mean, he, he said, why is this character here? Because they don't really do anything. Hmm. That character was there because I wanted him to be, because he was someone I knew died and I wanted him in the book, Hmm. but it didn't work. Okay. So out he came. Huh. Okay. That's sometimes can be a bit tough, but you know what? It's good advice and it really changed the book and made it better. Okay. Okay. So you don't have, so you don't hold on to any particular scenes or characters or, or settings that strongly if you don't need to. Yeah, no, I, I, no, I do. I do. I do. Um, there's a couple I've really not wanted to remove, uh. but I go to other people's wisdom. Hmm. And sometimes that's that's a, that's a real blessing. I've, I've never done that in my life in anything else. I certainly never did it in my artwork. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, so to have someone who's saying, you know, kind of, <laughs> <laughs> they're right. <laughs> that's an interesting point. No one goes to your painting and says, hey, why don't you put a little mark there and put the color? Maybe it wouldn't be healthy for them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm speaking with Brian Catling, author of Hollow. You can find more information about his work at bcatling.com. If you like this episode so far, please like it and consider subscribing. All of my links can be heard at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. Actually, I'm also curious about the, uh, the t- temporal work I, I saw in your bio. Mm. I'm curious what, uh, can you talk about that a bit? What is it? Painting in temper is is, is um, it's, it's it's basically egg, mm-hmm. the egg yolk mixed with pigment, mm-hmm. and then put on gesso, which is a porous surface. It's one of the oldest forms. It, it predates oil paint. Okay, um, goes back before the Renaissance. Mm-hmm. But it's a very it's a very interesting form. It, you have to work with it quickly because it dries. Okay, and I make most of my paintings not much bigger than this. Mm-hmm. I'm not interested in color-filled things that you walk into. I like to make windows that you have to go and peer peer into rather than stand back or be in, immersed in. Mm-hmm. The great thing about tempura and, and uh, te- sorry, tempera painting and um, um, egg tempera is it's 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 transparent. Mm-hmm. So the layers are colors of transparency. So you can build shadows inside the picture. Ah, okay. You can paint shadows first and then build it out. But sometimes I actually do that. I paint the shadow, and then but it takes like days or hours to know what the object is that made mm-hmm. the shadow. Okay. 
okay. and I finally paint the object. And that's a little bit like the writing sometimes as well. The atmosphere or the incident occurs, uh-huh. but I haven't got the motivation for it. Huh. It reveals itself because it's happened. How, how do you mount that? How do you protect uh, the piece? Well, you just put another layer of egg on it. Mm-hmm. Really interesting thing about this thing is it's gone on for centuries and they're still there. Okay. okay. Things are still there. So you can put varnish on it, but that's kind of frowned upon a little bit. Mm-hmm. But um, generally, it's it's tough stuff. Hmm. Okay. okay. Egg is amazingly tough material. Okay. I'll take you over for that. I haven't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but it's Okay. Right. Right. So, and and I guess the again in your bio it said that some of your the subjects uh, cyclopses and yeah yeah they were the first paintings uh, that came in painted that way. I started to make I started to make painting. I was making a performance where I was locked in this room. Mm-hmm. The audience came in every day. I was in there for six hours a day for ten days. Mm-hmm. Was making these other things, doing these other performances, but there's a quiet center in the room where I would stop and make these little paintings. And they were little portraits of, of Cyclopses. Hmm. And then I'd push, push them out the room. So it was a kind of prop. It was a kind of a um, performance event. Hmm. But I liked the things so much, I carried on doing it. Huh. So if I make portraits of Cyclopses, they're already way off from being what most other people paint. And they're imaginary people. They're imaginary things. Mm-hmm. And, that, and I don't really want to paint anything other than that. Oh. And so, so, so I just had like come in, and I just paint like that all the time. I'm doing less cyclopses now than ever, but it's uh, hmm. they're still there. And because I learned how to do it for myself mm-hmm. physically, so it's. Uh, are, are you a, a fan of the Iliad and the Odyssey and and, and those ancient ancient? Oh, yeah, of course, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. All of those things are just. Um, but I, I, I read them when I was young. I was, you know, this was the odd thing about my dyslexia. It was kind of, it was terrible at school for kind of normal things. But I would find these things in the library and read them. Mm-hmm. There's nobody really. So I don't understand why. But it was so I was saturating myself in that stuff. Huh. Okay. At the same time as people were trying to make me read D. H. Lawrence. Ah. Uh. Which you weren't, you weren't happy with. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> uh, interesting, interesting. And of course, you know, those ancient Greek works, you know, very poetic, you know, the way they, well, they're poems, they're long poems. <laughs> yeah. And the Celtic ones and the Nordic ones, you know, it's, you know, that those are the things I was really interested in. But I found, I mean, I, I was reading, um, what was it? I was reading when they, the teachers, couldn't believe that I was reading. I was reading Rabelais. I was reading uh, Gilgamesh. Um, um, it's gone. It's gone. Re- Renaissance. Some Renaissance. Pentagle. Pentagle. Oh, okay. Yeah. And uh, um, you know, and that's not what that was never on syllabus in South London where I grew up. Oh, okay. okay. The corner, the darkest bit of the library, which I like going to because it was a dark bit of the library. Hmm. Yeah. So, so you did like the uh, so you're talking about the Icelandic sagas and that sort of thing as well. Yeah, and those things as well, and and you know the 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 older the better, you know, beer wolf, all, all of those things. All those things were really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. It was only when I started to understand that that aha Shakespeare, mm-hmm. now and Einstein Shakespeare through those, mm-hmm. not the other way around, and then it, things became a bit more sensible. Mm-hmm. It's interesting now that you. 
talked about this. It makes me the in the hollow as I read the first few pages, it kind of has that feel to it. You know, that sort of some, I can't pinpoint what the style isn't, you know, it's not the style isn't the same, but the feel, the atmosphere felt sort of like, you know, that, that, that feel. So that's really interesting. Yeah. Thank you. I I don't quite know how, but there you go. It's there. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. How about, have you done, okay, you've done a lot of work. Normally I ask authors what other work they've done apart from writing that's influenced how <laughs> or what they write. Is there anything we you, you do, you've you done that you haven't mentioned yet? Yeah, there's a few things, it's probably worth mentioning things I can't do. <laughs> okay. I've never been able to play a musical instrument. I've tried so hard. Mm-hmm. I'm hopeless at foreign languages and mathematics is beyond me. Hmm. So all those things that have kind of balanced structures and things that you learn by building on, mm-hmm. I'm terrible at. Oh, I so see. I think I was always terrible at that. So what I did was to make my own world, mm-hmm. to make my own way of doing things. And perhaps the other motivating force, I don't know about this because I don't, I've not examined it, but I was adopted mm. at a very early age. Okay. And I never made the journey to find out who my what my ancestry is or who, or who I am or where I came from. Mm-hmm. My adopted parents were wonderful people and took care of me and gave me a great life with no traumas. Mm. Okay. I brought them with me. Mm-hmm. I invented them. Ah. <laughs> I never had those kind of experiences, but but they're but they're there in my imagination. Mm-hmm. Are you motivate? Are you saying then that you're motivated to to take that journey or? No, no, I never did. It's too late now, so it, it's gone. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, um, uh, and I was, it was no, no, it, I need, I never had anything more than curiosity, mm. and that's not enough to knock on a stranger's door and say, guess who I am? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, that's oh. not right. <laughs> oh, I was thinking in terms of, you know, doing a, you know, the, your ancestry tree and that sort of thing. Oh, well, yeah, no, I mean, we'll spit in the bottle and see what comes out. Yeah. I love it. That's like genius, you know. Yeah, um, it's very. It's a very wide shotgun blast. That one. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I agree with you there. Um, okay, this is a bit of a whimsical question now. Um, so, when you were young, was there any power technology or fictional setting that you yearned to have or be part of? Uh, the answer is yes. Hmm. Um, of course, and there was always. I was always interested in the mysterious, mm-hmm. always drawn towards shadows. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, you know, when I got older, I looked into magic quite clearly, and I was looking at those things. I, there's a wonderful museum near where I lived that was kind of ignored. It was a kind of um, it was a very eccentric museum. Mm-hmm. But they had an open-shelf library. And magical books on it that shouldn't have been there. I mean, they were some really valuable, oh. and extraordinary things. I mean, you know, it's like Lovecraft. Like, you know, these are, you know, you go there, you find the Netramonicon on the shelf. I mean, it wasn't that, but it was a bit like that. So I was reading those kind of things. Um, I was interested in those things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also have a very deep influence from horror movies. Hmm. So I was when I you know was a kid I was I was going I was going to see those more than anything else, mm-hmm. you know, um, it, you know in the late fifties the sixties I mean I grew up playing on bomb sites, uh. 
And that's where the kids played. You know, they went out and played on bomb sites. Mm-hmm. So as things went on, so so seeing the first horror film, seeing those things, it was another. It was another. This is not in my life. This is a bit. It's close to what I want to be in my life. Hmm. Okay. And and um. So I was drawn towards those and, and some themes more than others. I've always been much more interested in the Frankenstein theme than a Dracula theme, for example. Hmm. Okay. Um, um, and I've just been asked to rewrite a version of Frankenstein. Oh, yeah? And that's, I'm probably going, wait, are we, we right for time? No, 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 we're good, we're good. Okay, because I, I found something extraordinary. And I don't think anyone's noticed this. That in, in Mary Shelley's book, when, after, right at near the end, when the monsters asked him to go and make a, a mate for him, mm-hmm. he goes to the, uh, he goes to the Orkney Islands, which is about as far as you can go in the British Isles. Mm-hmm. The entire line is at the top of Scotland. There's nothing there. Frankenstein says there's nothing there. There's just a, here as a sheep, sheep shearer's hut. Mm-hmm. There's nothing. There's no people. And he makes the female for his monster. Mm-hmm. And then he destroys it because he's not going to give it to he decides. But he says it's almost finished. Mm-hmm. Where did he make it from? <laughs> Certainly not big electronic sparking machines. Certainly not going to a graveyard. Certainly that's not there. Mm-hmm. But it, they keep talking. It's all the way through the book. He, t- he talks about his box, his case of chemical instruments. Mm-hmm. There's only one answer. It's an alchemical creature. Hmm. It's an incubus. It's a. It, it, it's an homunculus. Huh. The only thing it can be. Uh-huh. Somehow, you know, I'm going to get in a lot of trouble about this. But the first line of that book, if I write it, is Mary Shelley got it wrong. <laughs> it's really going to drop me in some shit, that one, you know. That's really not going to go down well. But it's... Um, it's it'll get people's it, attention. But if you follow it, this is the only thing it can be. It can't be made any other way. Hmm. So it sounds like it's it's veering into the magical then. Going yeah, it's, it's, yeah, but I mean, surgery grew grew out some very strange places. Medicine grew out some very great, strange places. Now, chemical was certainly one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and literature and history are full of people who have made semi people, mm-hmm. robots or, or monsters or homunculi or something. Mm-hmm. But what's happened in the cinema is that. It's absorbed it so well, so beautifully in America mm-hmm. by remaking the Frankenstein story in a certain kind of way, and I love those films. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's it's pushed us away from seeing this lion that goes over there. Mm-hmm. So I want to incorporate that into it as well. I want Boris Karloff to be in it. <laughs> in, the bo- in the book itself? Yeah, in the book itself. Bo- Boris is going to show up? Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. There's another little thing. I'm sorry, I'm, I don't want to bore you, but there's another little no, thing no. about the wonderful makeup for the Frankenstein monster. Um, Jack Pierce, totally original. Mm-hmm. Totally original. Not how he looked. There's nothing like that in the world before. I mean, it's been copied by other monsters or those comedy versions, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And I thought, no, 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 it doesn't work like that. There is a prototype somewhere. I think I found it. I think it's a Goya etching. Goya etching in the mouth. I can't remember the date of it, but it's the same head with the bolt, the thing, square. 
Oh wow! Yeah, that's a that's a real bit of. A, that's a cool discovery. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> huh. That's uh, and how are you going to share that in the book somehow? I'm in the book, I'm probably blown in there. Everyone knows anyway. Someone will write a PhD on it overnight. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I don't think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's funny how knowledge can be out there, like really amazing stuff, and people still, you know, it takes 15 years for people to notice, like, oh, yeah, that was really interesting. How come no one mentioned it before? Yeah, well, that's that's certainly coming true with lots of natural phenomena, like sentience in trees, and, you know, there are so many books about octopus now. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I did another interview. Um, someone actually, he wrote a biography on Francis Drake, and he mentioned this mathematician at the time who, he was a great mathematician, English mathematician, but he was also dabbled in magic, you know, and it was considered. Dr. D. Was that? Was it Dr. D? It John, John D. It, something like that. He, he was. Yeah, another Elizabethan. Yeah. Yes, yes. That's one of the reasons I went to Oxford, because that's where he lived. Ah, okay. <laughs> if okay. it's what we're talking about, he was, um, yeah, he was a magician. Mm -hmm. But he he claimed to have um, invented life as well. Ah, okay. He, he worked with a man called Kelly, John Kelly, and and worked for Queen Elizabeth one at some some time. And I think he also had. It might have been the same guy had some scrying stones. Like these little stones that he said yeah. he could uh, think yes. of look. Yes, the only other person it could be is Friar, Friar Bacon, um, mm. but that's Oxford as well. Oh, okay, now it I think it, of, it was a bit of an enclave here. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know, again, it makes you think about you know the 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 ties between science and magic, you know, spiritual thinking and and scientific thinking, um, how it's sort of blended naturally yeah well i mean if you go back to the um the mystery schools in greece mm -hmm. that's where all of those guys you know plato is where everyone did their secret training mm -hmm. you know it was not it was not it was not a kind of education that was sort of viable it was a sort of secret society and they they learned the basic things there and then went out to make their own their own versions of the world mm -hmm. and that went on for quite a long time mm -hmm. Are there any um, sort of uh, mystical or, or interesting, um, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Anything that, that, that's too scary for you to, to like get into, like something that kind of, you know, freaks you out, for lack of a better word? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that's a good one. Um, I think all of those things, when they become cults, mm -hmm. All of those things when they, I stopped being interested in magic when I realized that the other people who were engaged and interested in it were doing it for power. Ah. They were doing it for power or money or sex. Mm -hmm. um, all those things kind of interest me, that sex more than the power and the money. But um, <laughs> but I, I was looking for the knowledge. Mm -hmm. I was looking for the other component part of it, which is the Gnostic principle. Mm -hmm. You do these things to understand. You do these things to understand how things work. You do these things to understand the cosmos and the forces that, that move through it. Mm -hmm. And the guys that the people like kind of were doing these things weren't doing it at all. They were basic. Mm -hmm. and they were using anything they could 
to increase their way of controlling things. Mm-hmm. And I've never been interested in that. I've never been interested in, in money. I've never owned anything. But it's, um, mm-hmm. it's, <sighs> so I didn't want to go that way. Mm-hmm. So I pushed all that stuff aside. And then you've got the pure stuff. You've got the stuff about finding out about ideas and about how ideas work and that magic and, and science go hand in hand all the way through. Mm-hmm. I mean, some would say clearly still today, but it's um, less debatable. I'm not going to get into that one. Mm-hmm. No, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> um, it gets scary when people, I mean, I think there are things out there that are not human and are scary. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there are places I've been to, there are things in the world which are not human and are terrifying. I have no doubts about that at all. Huh. Interesting. I don't want to be in that place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm prepared to think about it and invent it, but I don't want to be in it. Mm-hmm. Do you think human beings can be more frightening than than that which is supernatural or mystical? I think yes, but in a different way. Mm-hmm. When human beings become very terrifying, it's when they become more like human beings. Hmm. I mean, I don't think, I think when they take on a kind of, a satanic force, you know, and so they become a kind of marvel creature, you know, with horns and things. I lose interest instantly. Mm. Um, that's just a trope. Mm-hmm. It's when it's when they become terrifying versions of humanity. Mm-hmm. And they have followers, and people go along with it, and it, that's when it gets really scary. Um, but I think, but I think there are forces that are detached from us. I think there are things in landscape, there are things in, in the wildernesses, and I think there are things in places where there aren't people. Mm-hmm. Are very powerful and they have nothing to do, anything to do with us. Hmm. I remember being in 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 a desert in Australia, um, in, in in the outback, mm-hmm. in a van in the middle of nowhere, and thinking, "There's nothing here that knows me and wants to and is interested." Yeah, yeah, nothing. It's so old, it's forgotten about us. Hmm. And yeah. when we come along, as you notice, it's not remotely interested. That has a kind of different fear to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Elgin and Blackwood, the ghostwriter, was very good at writing things like that, mm-hmm. writing things which would which were detached from humanity. Mm-hmm. England is one of those haunted places you can go to. You know, it's everywhere you go. There's something that and the people say the landscape. But what the reason is because it's tiny. It's always been occupied, mm-hmm. and bloodshed continually to fight over this you know this this scrap of land. Mm-hmm. When you get to the big places, it's something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's true in America as well. I'm, you know, I've had things in Death Valley which has got nothing to do with the people who've been here. It's something by itself. Yeah, yeah. Actually, you made me think of a. a not too long ago, I finished a novel. I think it's the Raven and the Eagle about the the, Brit, the Romans in Britain and a lot about the Druids and all that. That was pretty fascinating. Yeah, it is. I mean, those those conflicts, you know, between completely different belief structures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think these things get washed away. I think they get submerged or absorbed. As I said, like the church, Christian church is very good at absorbing those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it doesn't, no, I have no doubts there are secret things in, in the Vatican yeah. that, are really, that, are really, that are really controlled and kept under lock and key. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I can no imagine. Doubt about that. 
Yeah. <laughs> that would be the best library to go sneaking around. For you 40 would be able to read it. That's the other thing. But, the, but also like Borghese, you know, I mean, so when it, I mean, I'm, I've never been a great fantasy reader. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've done the basics, of course, but it's, but they never, they don't touch me quite the same way that people like Marquez and Borghese do. Mm-hmm. You because know, they, they engage you in, in they, they're not going to let you in, mm-hmm. but they engage you in being there. And I think that's probably a better place for me, for me to think about, you know, what I want to do with my audience. Mm-hmm. I don't want to tell them what to think or tell them what's going on. I want to engage them in something where they're probably witness to it. Mm-hmm. And that's an uncomfortable position. Witness is always uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. What, what that's, would you... that's true in making performances as well. Yeah. Uh... I like to turn people who see my work into witnesses rather than audience. Ah, I see. I see. I think I understand. I think I can understand the difference, you know, that line. What, uh, I want to actually want to step back a little bit back to the horror stuff. What, um, or which, uh, what character or what person would you say is the most terrifying to you? And maybe someone you might want to write about if, if you. Well, a traditional one. Uh, it could be fictional or a real person or. Well, of course, I think the worst ones. But I don't particularly want to write about them. The people who can actually, I like people who control the death camp. Mm, right. I mean, that's not where you want to go in this. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not fantasy, but people who can do that, like in a way that they they can do that, like they're 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 working in their garden, or, right? Or working on the railroads or something. You know? That's the that's that's the reality scary stuff. Right. The other stuff I'm attracted to. Mm-hmm. Things that turn into wells and things that turn into other beings mm-hmm. attractive. Yeah. Um, because, not because it's fiction, but because it's a greater reality. Mm-hmm. People becoming worse people is not a great reality. It's a, so it is a great reality. It's not a great fiction. Mm. Right. I'm interested in fiction. I love fiction. Mm-hmm. I prefer to live a life of fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but the characters are attracted to, they're generally, <laughs> okay, Quasimodo. Ah, okay. You know, this is not a hero. This is not, when I, went, when I was at school and I saw Charles Lawton Quasimodo, I couldn't, but it was wonderful. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be him. Yeah. But it's not, most of the other kids of my age didn't want to be Quasimodo. <laughs> you know? <laughs> They wanted to buy an electric guitar, you know. I thought, I'd love to live in a belt. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, so it's, cool. um, yeah, but it's it's kind of, um, the bills may be deaf, you know. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know, it's just, it's, so I've always, I'm always interested in the downtrodden as well. Also, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm interested in, um, anyway, it's obvious I've got a stutter. And when I was younger, I also had ticks that went with that, mm. you know, at, um, so I always felt a little bit like I was on that side, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm not going to be Elvis Presley, but I'd rather be them anyway. Mm. Okay. Not, the fact that Elvis Presley turned into that isn't. <laughs> and there's a fiction. That's a that's a myth story. Yeah. To be read that way as werewolf, which is very interesting. Yeah. Actually, really interesting. I make a note there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. So you did. Um... 
So you alluded to your next writing project. I don't know if you were just saying it's something you might be working on or. I just there... finished one. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And, and was that, so it's the Frankenstein one? No, no, no. I've been asked to write that. I've right. notes about that. Right. But this is called Transi. Um, the title is Transi, um, a twice told tale of a double tomb. Hmm. Transi is the name of cadaver tombs or became prevalent in England over 150 years where um, it's made of three parts. Mm-hmm. The top part of the tomb is a sculpture, an effigy made of the person in all their grandeur, wearing their clothes, their robes. Mm-hmm. It's just sitting on a box, a stone box that actually contained their bones. Mm-hmm. And underneath it, there's another effigy of them in death, like mm-hmm. a cadaverous skeletal figure in agony. Mm, okay. and they were made it was a time when people the church was really pushing for power and telling people about purgatory mm, okay. going to purgatory there's no doubt you may go to heaven and hell but you are definitely going to purgatory and the only way you're going to get out is through prayer huh. so some really rich people made an effigy of themselves. that's the most appalling kind of in a state of terrible permanent uh, uh, a permanent cadaver so mm. those who came to see them would feel so moved they would pray for them <laughs> okay this is true this ain't I, me i'm not making I, that i up. believe you i'm laughing <laughs> at people <laughs> <laughs> so this is about a, a carver who goes to make one of these things mm-hmm. so it's it's half set in 15th century england mm-hmm. and the other half is in contemporary connecticut ah, okay uh with two women characters live together you said before what i get you know or something I was scared about writing. So I'm writing the lives of two females who live together. Mm. My daughter was terrified. She said, you're going to get in so much trouble with this. I said, no, no, no they're human beings. You know, <laughs> no, dad, dad, no, no, you don't do it, don't do it. You know, I can't say the only thing that some people told me not to write. Huh. I got through it and I've given it to people and waited. For the attempt. I think it's all right. I think it's okay. Okay. But, but their lives cross over. Mm-hmm. So it's a love ghost story over 500 years. Okay. Periods fighting for dominance. Ah, okay. Um, and it's not quite like the others. It's a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Sounds really interesting. Um, I, I, I like it. It's, it's, it's more moving. It's more personal. Hmm. Um, and it, and it's most autobiographic. I don't, that's not something I, I, I normally go near. I go the opposite direction. Yeah, okay. I, I my 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 fiance died of cancer two years ago, uh, unexpectedly, and it was like astonishing. And and so whatever one feels and you do for all those things, unfortunately, as a writer and an imaginative person, mm-hmm. some part of it turns itself into a story. Yeah, yeah. Whether you like it or not. True, true. I decided to do it, to do, to go for it, not to hide from it and use it to, mm-hmm. as a fuel to this thing. Because once it gets going, it becomes something else. Yeah, yeah. I've never normally taken anything on like that that starts with, you know, starts from my own experience. Right. I, I didn't write something that I've never been there. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, it, it, it does sound fascinating, though. Um, something worth reading, worth picking up. And, and I hope so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, yeah. Are, are there any um, 
I'm just thinking about the horror writers. You know, of course, there are all the classics that people are aware of. But are there any any that you've read that maybe people aren't aware of that you'd like to mention? Um, again, they're not normally horror writers as such. Mm-hmm. I have to say that one of the influences, one of the influences in, in getting me to write was the Anubis Gates. Hmm. Who wrote the Anubis Gates? Oh, come on, Tim. Sounds vaguely Tim familiar. Powell. Tim Power, Tim Power, Power. American author. I, yeah, I think I've heard the title. It's way back now. It's in the sort of, I don't know, the 70s, I think. Okay. But I like the way he composed it. Mm-hmm. It, was one of those, it was one of those books that I, I kept going back to. I don't normally do that. Um, um, and I used to, uh, uh, and you also mesh stories together hmm. at different times, and I really, really like that. Okay. Uh, so I think that was an influence. Um, Elgin and Blackwood has been more or less forgotten these days. Hmm. Um, you know, the, the, the English ghostwriters, um, and some of the French, French peculiar ones who are not, they're not fantasy and they're not science fiction, but they're kind of at the essence of it. Hmm. For you, all roads lead back to a ground Poe. Right. Yeah. All roads. Yeah. Um, uh, because what he was doing, I think, is what I would want to do. Because I don't think he would ever call what he was doing fantasy mm-hmm. or science. And not those terms were known, but it, they were right. tales of mystery and imagination. Right. Yeah. And I think that still works for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and the language. I mean, you said at the beginning about the poetics, mm-hmm. that poetic language. Poe, my God. Mm-hmm. Some of that, when you kind of. You, that, you, no, especially when you hear it, there's some great early recordings of Basil Rathbone reading those things. Oh, okay. He has this stern kind of Shakespearean tone. Yeah. No jokes, you know. There's nothing ironic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's, and it's, and it's but, the, but he allows the language. The language is so rich. Mm-hmm. And it, it often gets forgotten. You know, Roger Corman did great things in all those movies, mm-hmm. but he, he kind of managed to not allow people to remember how beautiful the, the words are. Huh. Um, and they are. Yeah, yeah, they are. Hmm. Okay. So where, do you have, uh, are you on, do you have a webpage or do you have social media? Are you online where people can follow you? I have a, I have a, f- a Facebook page. Mm-hmm. And I think I've got some other ones, but I've forgotten how to turn them on. I have to wait for my daughter to come to show me how to use them. Ah, okay. Just for me how to get in. I've got a website um, that's available for people to see what's going on. Um, so, so you do have a website? Do you, what, what's the address of that? It's uh, bcatling.com. Oh, okay. It's yep. as simple as that. It's mainly full of art rather than anything else. Okay. Uh, I'll spell that for our listeners and viewers. So it's bcatling.com. And it's... Um, and it's, but there's also news in there of the films that are being made. Yeah. Because that's, that's, that's beginning to, I'm sitting in isolation now in my little, my little house in, in a tiny village in Oxfordshire, just outside of, you know, Oxford itself. Mm-hmm. Every day just working at the dining room. I haven't got a studio at the so I'm working at the dining room table, mm-hmm. writing, making paintings. But out there, mm-hmm. 
all this stuff spinning about turning into films. In fact, some has been turned into films. There's other deals being going, there's conversations. There's people talking about figures, financial figures, yeah. that when I see them written down, I don't know what they mean. There's so many zeros in it. And it's not about me paying me for them. It's what it costs to make these things. Uh, okay. and I just don't, I literally, you know, I told you I was bad at mathematics, but I can't, I don't know what it means. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, but that's all spinning and that's all going on. But the most exciting thing is Lucille Haji Hakilevich, who made this wonderful, wonderful film mm-hmm. uh, for your listeners, viewers, to, to if they haven't, they don't know about it, called Evolution. Mm-hmm. You have to write in, it, it, you can get it, you can see it on Amazon. It's, it was, um, there's two films called Evolution. One's a kind of comedy. Mm-hmm. So you write in Evolution 2015, and you see this film. She makes these atmospheric, creepy as hell films hmm. where you think you know what's going on. I mean, it's, it's all clear. It's all, it's all nothing's hiding behind the table at all. But they are so mysterious and so um, uh, atmospheric. And she wanted to make she wanted her next film to be one of my books. Oh, wow. That's so it's been nice. done. It's okay. been, they shot it in lockdown, would you believe? Oh, so it's, it's been filmed. Okay. Yeah, it's done. It's finishing editing uh, this this month, so mm-hmm. it should be out for the festival sometime this year. And, and the fe- it's called Earwig. <laughs> I'm plugging now. The film is or the festival. The film is called Earwig. Earwig. Can you spell that? Uh, like the the bug. Okay. Are they call them that in America. Earwigs. I think I've heard the term, but I don't think it's uh, in America. Yeah, I don't know it. It's years. come out weird. It's come out at the same time as a cartoon film called The Earwig and the Something and the Caterpillar or something. Kind of something else has come out. This is a kind of you know kids film, but it's um it's a bug. Okay, the earwig. The bug is not in, not in the story at all. Okay, it's just the title. <laughs> <laughs> just to confuse people. <laughs> Interesting. Now I have been to Cambridge. I haven't been to Oxford. I know Cambridge is really nice. I imagine Oxford is too. It's, yeah, they're different. Mm-hmm. They have different, they have different backgrounds and they have different magical histories. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And that's kind of interesting in itself. Yeah. yeah, yeah. In conflict, in in cooperation, or a mixture? No, no, no. Just different. Just I mean, they they grew differently. I mean, they grew through the church and mm-hmm. uh, monasteries, and that was the same way. But they grew through slightly different power structures politically and slightly different areas of specialization. Mm-hmm. But Oxford was the one that always had the magicians, hmm. and you know, I mean, Friar Bacon was a, a world class scientist. You know, he's been known, mm-hmm. been dead for seven hundred years or something. But he's you know, so known for his other amazing things he made, including the brazen head, the speaking head. Yeah, um, okay. but that was here. I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff. Hmm. That's okay. I got to look that up. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, um, I hate to cut this short, but, uh, that's, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any parting thoughts or words? Um, I'm not, I'm not very good at those. Um, how, how do you, how do you do the end in your books? Like, do, do you reach a point oh, where you're just like, I'm done? <laughs> no, no, no. They, they take me by surprise. <laughs> they really take me by surprise. And sometimes I'm going like that off the end and think, Oh, what? Oh, okay. You know, um, <laughs> The thing when I've been doing readings and uh, promotion things in America, in particular in America, when 
Random House Penguin who, who wanted me to go around different places in America. Mm-hmm. So one of the questions that comes out a lot, it comes out here as well, but it's, it's, it's more polite in America. <laughs> it's kind of like, um, how do you get to do all these things? It's kind of like permission. Mm-hmm. Like who's giving you permission to do these things? And then, and then the last question is kind of like, how can I do it? <laughs> how can I live your life? And as a teacher, someone who's, who's purposely engaged in other people's imaginations to escape from my home, escape from my own imagination uh-huh. for quite a long time, that's an important question. Hmm. So, so the answer to that is you begin. Hmm. You start like I did when I was 61. Mm-hmm. The first part of the story, then you don't let it go until you stop noticing that you're writing. Hmm. And I don't think you have to be mean to make that work. I think it's in people. Mm-hmm. And I see people get sidetracked. They get side, sidetracked by formal education. They get sidetracked by work. They get sidetracked by schools. Mm-hmm. They get sidetracked by more unpleasant things, but it's mm-hmm. kind of there. Mm-hmm. Just go believe in it for a second, let it go, and off you go. Yeah, yeah. I think that's good advice. Um I don't spend all my time giving advice. Hmm. <laughs> Just a little bit. Just a few seconds here and there. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. To finish off. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, um, thank you very much for speaking with me. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank it has. You. It has. Thank you. In the next episode, I speak with Christian Cantrell, author of Scorpion, a sci-fi techno thriller. Hit the subscribe button to catch that episode. Thank you for listening to Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want more interviews with writers and creative people, or to get daily fiction suggestions including sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, sign up for my newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com and follow me on Chris Alvarez Full Contact Nerd on YouTube and Chris Alvarez FCN on Facebook and Twitter, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi on Instagram, and this podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want to hear interviews with military historians or get daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and follow me at Warscholar on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, at Chris Alvarez Warscholar on Instagram, and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want to hear interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or get daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyinspace.com and follow me at Spacewalks Money Talks on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, Spacewalks MT on Twitter, and my podcast, Technology and Space. Thanks for listening, and I hope to see you again soon. Keep imagining the past, the present, and the future.